Um, We are in Revelation chapter 3, so turn there with me. Revelations chapter 3. If you received a song sheet when you came in, you will see that you have an outline on where we are going this morning. So we've been studying this uh, uh, letter of Revelation, really the seven letters that were written to seven churches in Asia Minor. Those letters can be found in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. Uh, but chapter 1 really sets, the, uh, sets up the book's trajectory, where we're going with all of the book. We know that John the Apostle uh, was on an island because of his bold witness for Christ and he was persecuted and exiled to a a barren, rocky, volcanic island called Patmos. Uh, The description of chapter 1 really sets the trajectory and it talks about, really reveals to us the person of Jesus, the the eternal one, the, the son of God. His work, his sufficient atonement on the cross, his victory over death and and his soon coming conquering return really sets up the rest of the book. And chapter 1 is so important. A prologue like no other prologue. Revelation is a book that declares, as we've been saying, the majesty and the, and the beauty and the glory and the, uh, of the warrior lamb king who's coming again to reign and to rule forever. It was on the Lord's Day, Sunday, that the Lord himself came to the apostle John to write down and deliver the letter of Revelation to the seven churches around 93, 95 A.D., The first letter he wrote in chapter 2 is the church of Ephesus. Jesus recognized that they were committed to the truth. They hated uh, false teachers. They they hated evil. But they faced judgment, if you remember. They they had forsaken their first love, their first love for Christ, and their first love for one another. The third letter, I skipped to on purpose, the third letter was written to Pergamum. Jesus acknowledged that they were loyal to him as they faced persecution, but, but judgment was coming because they were compromising their witness. They were, they were a compromised church, and they allowed in sexual immorality and adultery. That was the third letter. The fourth letter to the church of Thyatira, and Jesus recognizes their Deeds and evidence of love and faith and service. But this church had gone beyond even compromise. They let the floodgates open. They they were swimming right along the current of, of that culture of that day. That sinful culture which included idolatry. The letter, the fifth letter to the church of Sardis. We saw that last week. There was a a small amount of people, a very few folks, like a a smoldering uh, uh, ember in a dark fire. But but they were, by and large, dead. And we see this this clear progression of sin and rebellion, judgment. And we get to the last church, the church of Laodicea. I like to say Laodicea because it's easier for me. Where the Lord spits them out of his mouth. He's not even in the church. He's outside knocking on the door. Yet right in the middle of these letters, in the second letter and the sixth letter, the letter to Smyrna, the second letter, and now today the letter written to the sixth church in Philadelphia, we see uh, this, this bright light. Now, now, to be sure, Smyrna and Philadelphia, which Jesus has nothing bad to say, no condemnation in these churches, let's all agree together this morning that there were sinners in the church. Right? How do we know that? Well, there are is no one perfect, no one righteous, except Jesus. We're all sinners, and therefore there's no perfect church. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect elder, deacons, deaconesses, no perfect congregation. 
In fact, I love when people say to me, I, you know, I don't really go to church because there are a lot of hypocrites at the church. I say, yeah, if you go, you'll add one more. Just saying. We're an imperfect people who are clinging to and living out the gospel. Hopefully we're maturing in the faith. We're regularly repenting of our sins. We're growing in holiness, meaning conformity to the image of Christ. But we're not perfect. So the question is not, can the church be perfect? Because I don't think Smyrna or Philadelphia were. But can the church be faithful? That's the question this morning. Can the church be faithful? The answer is yes. Case in point, Smyrna and Philadelphia. An imperfect church that received only commendation from the Lord. A church where the Lord sees and the Lord knows and does not condemn but commends. There's no warnings, no threats, no judgments, no criticism. Oh, how I hope King Chapel could be that kind of church. Smyrna and now Philadelphia. Revelations chapter 3, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, the, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. And behold, I will make them come and bow down before you, before your feet, and you will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Five headings this morning. Christ's revelation, verse 7. Christ's commendation, verse 8. Christ's rebuke, not to the church, but we'll get into that. Uh, Verses 8, 9, and 10. uh, Verse 10 is Christ's challenge. And then finally, Christ's reward. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's look at the first one, and that's Christ's revelation. I say revelation, I mean unveiling. Who Christ reveals himself to be. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Let's stop. We've talked about each one of the cities. It's very important. We know a little bit of historical background about Philadelphia. About 30 miles southeast of Sardis, today in uh, Turkey, called Alisar. Is the name of the city. It was founded around 140 B.C. by Attalus II. His surname was Philadelphus. Out of love for his brother, he called this city that he founded the city Philadelphia, which is two Greek words that mean love and brother, the city of brotherly love, just like our city today in America. It was strategically located along a very well-traveled route that linked Asia in the east with, with Europe in the west, uh, Roman uh, imperial post route went through Philadelphia and it earned the name of a city, name of the city, a nickname of the city called Gateway to the East. 
It was a city that had an open door with lots of trade and lots of commerce. In fact, uh, the Greek language and the Greek culture was spread from Greece and Macedonia to Asia Minor and Syria right through Philadelphia. It was designed or designated to be the missionary city for the spread of Greek culture and Greek language. Also, it's important to know that in this city, there were lots of earthquakes, as was in Sardis in AD 17. It was destroyed by an earthquake. There was a vault that ran through that city, and they had uh, some serious tremors and, and, and earthquakes, uh, again, destroying it in AD 17. Many people would leave the city out of fear. They would feel the earth shake, or the, they've been involved, or their family's been involved, or their ancients have been involved with earthquakes, and they would leave the city walls, set up outside uh, the city in the in the, in the courtyard, or excuse me, the countryside, and they became farmers, and they found that the volcanic uh, volcanic soil uh, helped grow uh, fruits and vegetables and things like grapes was a big um, uh, export for them. It was Roman Emperor Caesar Tiberius who helped Philadelphia after and Sardis after the earthquakes to rebuild. They built a monument to him, and they worshipped him there. There was emperor worship there. Um, Tiberius, after the, the earthquake, told the cities of Philadelphia and Sardis that they did not have to pay Rome taxes for a while. That would get anybody worshipped, I think, nowadays. Thank you. Thank you. That was funny, but okay. Lastly, it's interesting that the Roman emperors at this point as well took on the title as they were being worshipped, as the son of the Holy One. That's the city that Jesus reveals himself to them as, look at the word, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the Holy One, the pure one, the separate one, the completely distinct one. Jesus is separate from creation. He is transcendent because he is the creator. He is separate from sin yet imminent as the incarnate man, God-man, savior of the world. This is not, I don't, I don't believe this is just ontological, meaning it's intrinsic nature, which is holy, which is true. But Jesus' life was completely separate, completely consecrated to God as Father. We have seen this before, and I'll point it out again in all of these introductions, is Jesus is unquestionably, unquestionably, Claiming his own deity. He shares the holiness of God. Not Caesar. Not the emperors. But Jesus alone. In fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, he was brought into the presence of the Lord. He says, I see the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphims, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called out to one another, to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. God alone is holy. Jesus says he is the holy one. He's also the true one. The Greeks, in the Greek language, the, uh, the, the true one means authentic, genuine, real, as opposed to that which is fake and false. But to the Hebrews, uh, the, the, the true one re- meant really faithfulness, trustworthy. Jesus is both, right? Speaks the truth. He's not the fake. He's the, the real God, the only true God. 
Not the false one. He is the holy and genuine. He is perfect and is righteous. He is true in his character. And all that he says, all that he does, all that he speaks is entirely trustworthy. Revelation 6.10, O Lord, holy and true. Two glorious, magnificent attributes of his supreme character, holiness and truth. I was thinking about that yesterday and finishing up. How important is it for today, this day, on what's going on in our nation, that he is holy and true, that he is just, perfect, righteous, and true? Do we realize this morning, with all that is going on, that evil is not in control? Injustice does not rule, finally. Depravity is not king. Violence is not final. Satan will not triumph. God is and will always be worthy of our trust and no matter what's going in our life because he is holy. And with his holy, just power, he will defeat every evil thing that has made this world a mess, made our lives a mess, made our hearts a mess. He will deliver us into a world we will see in Revelation 21. We'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, free from all that is wrong. So no matter how much we fight for equality, and we should, no matter how much we fight against injustice, for justice, we should, we as children of God know that this world will not be eradicated from those things until Jesus comes back. And we have that hope. We have that hope. So we're not fighting those things, trying to change the world so it's perfect. We should fight. We should do those things. But we know it will come when Jesus comes. He's the perfect one. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He goes on to identify himself to this church as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It's the first time in uh, all our letters that we've been studying that there is no clear reference to Jesus' description in chapter 1, picked up later in chapter 2, although it is implicitly taught in chapter 1, verse 18, where Christ in his description in chapter 1 says he holds the keys of death and Hades. Here, the key of David. Other, other place in Revelation, he is called the root of David, who comes from the line of King David, fulfilling the prophecies of King David's greater son, Jesus, who will reign over an eternal kingdom. We saw that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when we studied that, those two books. Jesus is the messianic authority and line of David who possesses the keys. The key, symbol of authority, the symbol of sovereignty. When we talk about the key of David, we have to keep it within, also within Old Testament truth, Old Testament revelation. In Isaiah chapter 22, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, received the key of the chief steward of the king's household. And, and as the representative of the king with the key, he was authorized to exercise full authority, full administrative authority in the king's name. He had the keys to the treasury. And having the, the keys, he had authority over all the royal treasure. He can open the treasures. He can disperse them or uh, dispense them. Uh, the key of David is the key of David's house, which is the key of the Messianic kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. And what a contrast. The key which belonged to Israel, the Jewish people, belong now to Jesus as Israel's Davidic Messiah. For they had forfeited their Right, because they reject their Messiah. 
It is Christ alone who gives who can give men entrance, women entrance into the messianic kingdom. Jesus has the authority to admit, to exclude, who comes into the presence of the king. That's what Jesus is saying. I have the key of David. What I open stays open. What I shut stays shut. And here's the big takeaway I want us to see. I was talking with a family in in our community group who has a, a bright young man in their family who sees this picture of Jesus in chapter 1 and said, you know, I, I never really saw that. I really don't think about that. And, and I think if at this moment, let's just sit back and say, we see Jesus revealing himself in chapter 1 for a reason. And we, we have to try to wrap our brain around, our faith around, our heart around this Jesus. Not, not the, the humble, sometimes homeless, disregarded, marginalized man from, from Galilee. Although that was true. But now we see him as the risen, reigning king of kings, lord of lords, who sees and knows everything and everyone. You see, as Jesus reveals himself to these churches, he is reminding them not who he was in his incarnation, but who he is now as the risen, glorified king of kings. And we need to see that this morning. And listen, think through with me for a moment. If we get a better, if, if all of us here today see the scripture, believe it in our hearts, if we, if we can get a better understanding, a, a deeper awareness, a greater and grander picture of Jesus now, what happens to our problems that seem to be so great and so grand? Our problems will be like what John the Baptist desired. He must increase, but, but I, my problems must decrease. Our vision of Jesus must be greater than the vision of our problems. My awareness of Jesus must be grander than any of my circumstances. The revelation of Jesus. Look at number two, Christ's commendation. I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know you, pastor elders. I, I, I know you, deacon, deaconess. I, I know you, children's church teachers, community group leaders, food pantry helpers, hospitality team, band members, and all the other people who serve the Lord and serve one another within community. I know you. What he's saying is that the one who has the ability to open the door that no one could shut Shut doors that no one opens, looks on favor, looks, looks, at, looks with us as ones who serve and know him. And he placed before them an open door. That open door is a gospel ministry that has been opened that no one can shut. And even though they have little power, I don't think it means Holy Spirit power. It's a faithful church. I think it's a small church. I think, I think it's a small church. Although they have little power, they have been faithful. And I love that. This little church with, with seemingly insignificance in appearance, no, maybe no great influence, ineffective in the eyes of the world, but they were the vehicle. They were the ones, the small church that God was using as a vehicle to advance the purposes his purposes in the world. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, 
And you're being used of God to advance his kingdom, sharing your faith, looking at ways to just love people and show them Christ. You are significant. If you are living missionally, living as missionaries, wherever you find yourself, you are significant. If you are living for the glory of God, you are significant to God. No matter what your job it may be, no matter what you're doing, they had an open door because they were faithful. We must learn to leave, I've said this before, maybe some of you heard this, we must leave the fruitfulness to God. God is asking us to be faithful. To be faithful. To be faithful. I know your works. Church is faithful, look what they've done, they have kept the word of God. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The Lord has to open doors to make evangelism possible and effective, but we must be faithful. We must not deny his name. We must, we must not only not deny his name, we must be faithful to his word, to the scriptures. Evangelism cannot be done without both God's word and Christ's name. First Peter 1, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to proclaim to you. In Acts chapter 14, after Paul and Barnabas uh, shared the gospel, preached the gospel, preached the word, they reported to the church in Antioch how God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God opens these doors no one is able to shut so that the word of God can be declared, proclaimed, that, they can, that people can respond to the word by faith and people may enter into salvation, the door of his presence. By now, many of you know I love... Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul tells the church in Colossae, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Steadfast prayer, watchful and be thankful. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, that's the gospel, and that I may make it clear which, I, which is how I ought to speak. Whenever God opens doors for his followers to demonstrate and declare the gospel, he blesses their work. The work of evangelism, the work of mission flourishes at God's open doors. We step out in faith. We proclaim the gospel and people come to faith in Christ. Now remember, this city was the city that was designated to be the the missionary way into Greek culture to spread Greek culture, to spread the Greek language. And Christ says, no, we got something greater than that. We've got something greater than that. So what does that tell us this morning? That even though this church was small, they were faithful. They had opportunities. And the question for us this morning is, will we be faithful? Will we live on mission with Christ. Is there someone in your life that you could think of right now that you need to begin to pray for, that the doors would open, that their hearts would open? Is there someone that you can right now build relationship, intentional relationships with them so that you have opportunities to share Christ with? Maybe this week, pray and consider and think and hope and look to share your story with someone. Just simply how you came to know Christ. 
and what Christ has done in your life, how you came to faith, what Christ has done in your faith as you've grown with him, just sharing your story with someone this week. Maybe this week, (laughs) may I be bold to say, maybe this week with all the unrest going on, maybe this week that may be a door for you to talk about Christ's perfect life, about glory that awaits us, about the brokenness of this world, how sin came into the world, Genesis 3, and everything's been unraveling since, and that God is calling people to repentance and faith in him, and that God is changing hearts, forgiving sins. Maybe maybe that's a conversation that you can have with somebody this week. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The door belongs to Jesus. And all of us who are Christ followers had that door closed at one point because of our sins. But when we believed on the Lord, we trusted in him. We believed that he died as our substitute on the cross. He took our sins. He bore our just wrath. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. And all those who call upon him We'll be saved. The door's open. And you can come in and out of his presence through his body that was broken for us. So what doors for missions and evangelism has the Lord opened up for you today, this week? What doors? How can we be faithful to take advantage of those opportunities? So we have Christ's revelations, Christ's commendation, Christ's rebuke. Now, again, we're not talking about rebuking the church, as you see in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, he says it twice for emphasis. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have, what, loved you. This open door that the church of Philadelphia had received by the Lord had a very specific group of people problem arising uh, known as the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is the second time that Jesus mentioned that. He mentioned chapter 2, verse 9, to the church of Smyrna. Interesting, same church, he had nothing bad to say. And he said to them in chapter 2, verse 9, to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that you are, that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I've said this before. I'm not going to get too into it, but I do think it's necessary for me to, to say it again. This is not, this is not a blanket anti-Semitic statement. Throughout our broken world, groups, religions have fought against one another. Jews have persecuted Christians. Christians, some say they were, some weren't. They were lying. They were false believers. But believers as well have persecuted Jews. It's the way of the broken world. Keeping this in context, which is so important to do, we we know evidently there was a significant conflict between the believers in Christ in that day and the Jewish people in Philadelphia. Now, Remember, John the Apostle is Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. So there's a problem going on contextually in this moment, at this time, between the the church of Jesus Christ and the synagogue in Philadelphia. 
Okay? That's evident. And we have to remember also what the scriptures teach us. That Jewish people are descended from Abraham, Jews by birth, but not Jewish in the sense of believers in Christ, which must be born again, not spiritual birth. They were descendants of Abraham by physical, but not spiritual birth. Jesus called out those unbelieving Jewish people in his own culture, in his own time, his fellow Jews. He called them out in John 8. He said, you are, the father, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Paul says, who is another Jew, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, pointing to the regeneration. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says, if you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you've been born again, and you belong to the body of Christ and to the person of Christ, then, he says, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what Jesus is doing, he's identifying his followers as the ones who are his. There were those who gathered in synagogues to the glory of the other kingdom, Satan's kingdom, not God's kingdom. And here you have to remember, God's kingdom is advancing with who as king? Jesus. And although I don't, I don't think there was actually a denomination called the synagogue of, or the church of Satan, like the first Baptist church of Satan. Like I wouldn't go there, right? Not a good place to be. But these Jewish people in this context vehemently opposed and persecuted believers in that day. In fact, if you remember in Smyrna, uh, the Jewish people in Smyrna could have well been in Philadelphia as well, received a special permit not to worship Caesar. They were given their own kind of like, y'all don't need to do this. And they may have been, just like they did in Smyrna, persecuting Christians by saying, look, they're not with us. They need to bow down to Caesar. They don't have the permit we do. Get them. That's very possible. They did not have the door open as we have now because Christ holds the key. And look what he says. Again, behold, emphatic. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus tells his church that keeping his word is not only the path that leads to this open door, but it's a path that leads to victory over the enemies of the gospel. Because bowing down before them is a sign of humility, a sign of victory. And the question that comes up with this text, I will make them come and bow down, is when does that take place? Has it really taken place in antiquity? Did it really take place in the day and time someplace in Philadelphia during this unrest, during this opposition? I don't think so. I, we couldn't find anything that said it actually took place. I think what John is saying, or Jesus is saying through John, is there's an end, eschatological end time reality that when Christ returns, every eye will see him. And, and they will know that Jesus, because of the gospel, loves his people. And those who oppose him will be rejected for eternity away from him. They will bow down before you. You see, God's particular love manifested by the gospel to gospel people. So in one sense, Jesus is rebuking, uh, uh, not the church, but the, the synagogue of Satan. But in that rebuke, he is saying to us, God loves you. God will protect you. God will care for you. And everyone will know that the gospel is the avenue of God's particular love on his people. There'll be vindication in the end. The promise is meant to encourage us. We are loved. 
that we will be vindicated and every knee, Philippians tells us, will bow to Jesus. God has highly exalted. Jesus bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Christ revelation, Christ commendation, Christ rebuke, and now Christ challenge, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The believers had endured patiently as Christ commanded them in his word. He kept their promise. He kept, he kept, he makes them now a promise, I should say, to keep them from the hour of trial that will come on the whole earth. Notice with me here in this text in verse 10. That deliverance from the hour of trial is because, see that? Because they have kept Christ's command to persevere, to stay on track, keeping the faith, maintaining their devotion. But verse 10 is probably, probably one of the most controversial verses in the seven letters to the seven churches. So I'm not going to get into it deeply, don't have time. But what does Jesus mean in this verse when he says, we'll keep you from the hour of trial coming on the whole world? Now, the hour of trial is a metaphor. An hour doesn't mean 60 minutes here. It's a period of time. But what trial is Jesus talking about? What is the hour of the trial? What does the word keep them from the trial? Is it removing them from the trial or is it a supernatural work of protecting them from the hour of trial? So there's a couple of ways. I'm going to hit them really fast. Uh, First thing you need to know that when it says those who dwell on the earth, he's talking about unbelievers. Revelation makes that very clear. The hour that's coming, the trial that's coming on those who dwell on the earth, he's talking about an unbelievers and that God's trial and, 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 and tribulation will come. I think, I think there's a general agreement that Jesus is talking about the final tribulation and distress that's coming upon the world as the world comes to its conclusion. Some people say maybe it's just a general uh, tribulation, but I don't think so. The Bible speaks of this great tribulation. Jesus spoke about it in chapter 24 in Matthew, uh, Old Testament, Daniel 9, Jeremiah 30. So the question of this text comes, how does Jesus protect? How does Jesus um, keep them from this hour? Does he keep them by protecting them during the hour? Does he, does he take them the church out before tribulation. You've heard this before. In the middle of the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, some say, no, no, Jesus is coming. He is taking the church, and they call it the pre-tribulation rapture. Some people hope to hold to a mid-tribulation rapture, that during the seven years, halfway through, God's going to come, and Jesus is going to come and take his church. Some hold to a post-tribulation rapture, meaning it will happen at the end of the tribulation period that they are protected. They're going to go through it. They're going to be in it, but they're going to be protected. At the end, he's taking his church. Then there's the final one that of the pan-tribulation rapture. It'll all pan out. No matter where you stand in all this, one thing we know for sure, and we can all agree on, Followers of Christ, believers in Christ will face difficulties, will face suffering, but they will be protected from the final wrath and judgment of God because Jesus Christ 
died as our substitute. He took the judgment. He bore the wrath we deserve. And we as his children will have our final day eternally with Christ. Can we all agree on that? Let me just say a couple things about tribulation, then we'll move on. Let's be honest. In America... Even though we see a lot of hardship and difficulties, there's no comparison to what's going on around the world. In India right now and other places, there are churches being persecuted. People are being murdered and slaughtered and killed. You can go back hundreds of years to the 1500s, 1300s. People were dying and being persecuted. Severe persecution. Burning alive. I mean, thrown to the lions. Shot, killed, stabbed, heads cut off. All that took place already. And I wonder sometimes, when I think of tribulation, I wonder sometimes if we're even ready for half of that today. Never mind the final tribulation. I don't think we are. I don't think we truly understand what has happened already, but we need to be ready. So rather than stress out on, on the final tribulation, we'll be here or not, you all want to do that, you can write ahead. But for me, I'm thinking this through, I'm saying, what does that mean for me today? And I think a couple of things, we may face persecution, not, not in the sense we'll lose our life, but I will tell you why. As we move on in our culture, we are facing an increasing opposition against things like the exclusivity of Christ. You stand up and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but through him. And let me tell you, you'll be looked at as a fool. We're facing opposition. We stand with God and his word against things like abortion. We call it murder. You'll be looked at as a fool. We stand with God, what he says about gender, sexual sins, what constitutes a marriage, other clear biblical truths in our culture, we will be persecuted. As time marches on, we are going to be, you and me, King's Chapel. As time marches on, we're going to be under severe pressure to abandon orthodoxy and to cave to social and cultural norms. Let's be a people who the scripture says keeps his word about patience, endurance. Let's do it in love, but let's do it in truth. And when we stand faithful with him, look what he says. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I'm coming soon. That's not, that's not a warning like in other churches. He's saying, I'm coming soon. That's a word of encouragement. His imminent and guaranteed pending return, which Paul wrote to Timothy and said, listen, uh, not only will I receive a, 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 a crown of righteousness, will award to me on that day, but not only me, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We're holding fast. We're looking for the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. This is that covenant relationship where God comes and he is sovereign. He makes a relationship and a covenant with us through the blood of Jesus. And then we respond how? In faith. We walk in faith. We trust him. We obey him. We repent of sins. We, we're obedient to him. We, we serve him. And when we do that, look what it says. It'll prevent our enemies from taking our crown. Stephanos, a, a victor's wreath at the end of, 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 the, of the race. Philadelphia was known for games and, and, and festivals. At the end of the race, the, 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 the winner will receive a crown. And Jesus says, you will receive that crown. Actually, he doesn't say that here. Look what it says. You're not receiving the crown. You already have the crown. But nobody will take it from you. Unlike another church where he said to Smyrna, be faithful and I'll give you the crown. They already possess the crown. But continue, be loyal, stay true to the end. 
It's not a, this, this, word of, this word of admonition, this word of encouragement is not meant to, to teach a loss of salvation. It is a word of encouragement and exhortation, a way in which God preserves his people and presses them on until the end. Don't let no one take your crown. Be faithful. Stand in the word. Lastly, Christ's reward, verse 12. The one who conquers, we see that over and over again, the conquering one, the faithful one. He gives them four promises. Number one, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Now, ancient temples were built in ancient in cities. And in those temples, the, they, they built a, 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 um, a pillar and they had names of important honored men on those names. The pillar. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Pillar also represents stability permanency remember in those days there was earthquakes and things would shake and buildings would fall and sometimes just the pillars would stand philadelphia with earthquakes and tremors and jesus says to them there's stability there's honor there's certainty there's confidence for those who conquer those who remain faithful Hendrickson says, this means that the saints are honored within the heavenly temple, which in fact is nothing less than the very presence of God. In short, the expression temple is is taken figuratively. God intends to honor his people in his sacred presence, end quote. Great quote. Revelation 21, 22, the Lord, the, the God, the Almighty, the Lamb are its temple. So what is he saying? Jesus is saying, listen, I will make you a temple. You'll be in position through my blood, through, through my cross of absolute, complete security. No disruption, no disturbance, no disaster, no earthquake will ever separate you from the presence of God. Never shall he go out of it. There's no need to run. You know, when the earthquake's shaking, you're all leaving the city. You don't need to run. This permanency, never shall you go out of it. Number two. Pillar in the temple, I'll write the name of my God on him. I will write on him the name of my God. The church of Philadelphia had a good name, a great name, a reputation in heaven. Jesus says, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. They've not been ashamed to identify with him, his name, his word. And he won't uh, be ashamed to identify with them. Those who bear the name of God belong to God. Number three. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, who comes out of heaven. We see that in Revelation 21. Notice, notice with me the, in Revelation 12, all the my in there. Five times the word my, representing and, and stressing intimacy with God. My God, the temple of my God, the name of my God, the city of my God. Jerusalem comes down, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. You see that? He's talking about this intimacy with God. We discover in, in Revelation 21, New Jerusalem is both a place and a people. A citizenship, not on earth, but in heaven. Not in Philadelphia, not in Glenmont, but in heavenly Jerusalem. They and all of us who remain faithful receive God's name as their possession. The New Jerusalem as our citizenship and the new name of our God. David Platt said this, just give me one more minute, we're going to conclude. Listen to this quote, David Platt. This, we remember, is the great reward of the gospel, God himself. 
When we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover the safety that is found only in his sovereignty, the security that is found only in his love, and the satisfaction that is found only in his presence. This is the eternal great reward, and we, should, we would be foolish to settle for anything else, end quote. That is a great quote. I will make him a pillar. I will write on him the name of my God. I will write on him the name of the city. And lastly, and my, look at the end of the verse, and my own new name, the name of Christ. We're not sure what that name is, but we know his name means his glory, his majesty. He, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sharing his victory with us. We identify with him, and he will give us his name. Family, to remain faithful means an eternal home, an eternal dwelling, but most importantly, the presence of our God. The presence of our God. He who has an ear, verse 13, let him hear what the Spirit says. Write to all the churches. Let, it's plural. God is saying, listen, evaluate what the Spirit is saying, what, what the Lord is showing you, what your heart is, is, is being told by the Spirit, by the Word. Evaluate your response. Learn, apply these messages to us. God has set before us an open door, a door that he will open and no one will shut. We must be faithful. So let me say this as we conclude. Let us see opportunities not obstacles. Let us seize the moment. King's Chapel, we will face opposition. We will face opposition, but we must hold fast to God's word. We must hold fast that he loves us. We must hold fast that he has given us an open door to demonstrate the gospel with love and care and and generosity and good deeds and to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will be seen then by Christ, known by Christ, as faithful witnesses. And we will receive the reward because of all that Christ has done and all that he has commanded us to do, empowered us to do, that we have been faithful. Who can you speak to? Who can you talk to? Who do you need to be intentional about this week to love up, to just love and care and look for ways to show them the truth of the perfect life of Christ. The life he could never live. We could never live. He only lived. The death he died in our place, who bore our sins, who took our wrath, who died in our place so that we can have forgiveness of sins. And then rising from the dead showed the world that his sacrifice was complete. It was sufficient. Written across the sky, forgiven for those who call upon the Lord. Let us be faithful. And let us walk through that door together. Father, God, we just pray, Lord, that even now you would stir our hearts to remain faithful to your name, to remain faithful to your word, to, to remain faithful in the midst of opposition, and, and, and Lord, to remain faithful on mission with you. Help us, God. Help us to share our faith. Help us to look to love other people, to care for other people, to listen to other people. But help us also to turn those conversations around to what Paul said is first importance. And that is the good news of the gospel. 
Help us to be those, that people today, Lord. In Jesus' good name, amen.